Let's bow together. Father, thank you so much for this privilege we have to be singing your praises and and worshiping you. And we we praise you for your son Jesus who gave himself for us. And Father, we thank you that your word reveals your son Jesus and that you also use your word to grow us in respect to salvation. And I pray as we come to this passage today that you would help us understand exactly why why you have given it to us by your spirit and that you would use it to continue to conform us to the image of your son Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. There are many people who claim to be devoted to Jesus Christ. Uh, now, uh, many of these are ministering and serving the Lord Jesus uh, every week, uh, multiple times during the week, claim to be devoted to serving Jesus Christ and and serve him uh, over and at, and through the week and on Sundays. But the reality is a devotion to Jesus Christ is simply truly that, a devotion to Jesus Christ. It's not just serving that makes us devoted to him. Uh, we serve out of a devotion to him, out of a changed heart. Indeed, Matthew in chapter 7 would even share that there's going to be many devoted servants of the Lord that will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all this stuff in your name, basically? Matthew 7:21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, serving the Lord Jesus doesn't mean that you're devoted to him unless that serving comes out of a devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that so often we get things wrong in our sinfulness and our pride rather than simply sitting at Jesus' feet and serving him and worshiping him. And from that comes service. We try to serve instead or to do the things of God rather than to uh, do those things because of the God that we're doing those for. With that in mind, we continue our, our look into worship in the body of Christ, worship in the church. We're in Nehemiah chapter 12, and there's all kinds of principles in this chapter, and I wanted to lay some foundational uh, elements before we get into that chapter specifically. So today, we're going to see what is at the core of our worship. What is at the core of our devotion? So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13. You see, because we can uh, look at some passages and miss the boat. We can look at the service and the things that are done and all the things that happen in, a, in, a, in, a, in the worship of the Lord as we look at it from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we can miss the reality of what's really behind it all, which is a devotion, a giving of one's entire self to the Lord, a giving over to him. So again, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13. And now uh, our passage we're going to look at today in Matthew begins to transition into the last section of the book of Matthew. Uh, it comes on the heels of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, now, although his death has been mentioned uh, briefly in the first 25 chapters, from these chapters on, 
we see that it is specifically focused on the death and uh, the crucifixion, uh, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, indeed, before this point, uh, Matthew has made it clear that the king uh, in David's line has come to save his people from their sins. And he had the way prepared by John the Baptist, preaching repentance. And we see he came to his own who were sitting in darkness, and he called on them to believe in him and to repent of their sins. He taught uh, kingdom truth, and he affirmed it with the miraculous showing that he is the king, he is the Lord of lords, the king of kings. He affirmed it with the miraculous. And then we saw that uh, he had, that the people over time rejected him and that the leaders rejected him and that they were a evil and adulterous generation that preferred the stuff that Jesus could do for them rather than what he would do for them by dying for their sins. And so he began to relay, after the plots began to build, relay his kingdom truths in parables so that the those who had hardened their hearts would not hear or see or understand, but that his disciples would be able to understand. And then, after a stinging condemnation of the leadership and the people, in chapters 24 and 25, we have the events that would precede his coming in glory his coming in glory and then judgment and then the institution of his kingdom upon earth. It's from this point we transition, Matthew transitions after Matthew 24 and 25 to the death of Christ and that's what these chapters are about. And today we come to the first chapter in this section, this first portion of this section, which begins the end of this book and the focus on what Jesus Christ would do for us on the cross. So today we're going to see from the Word of God what true devotion and worship looks like. What does it look like? You want to know what it looks like? We're going to see that today. Again, Matthew 26. And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, Not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this. And they said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did so to prepare me for burial. Therefore I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. And so here we have uh, the beginning of a portion that begins to the section concerning the death of Jesus Christ. But yet we have a true story concerning a woman's devotion. We want to see how does that relate 
to the passage, but also how does that help us understand what true worship looks like? Notice uh, the scene for what we're going to see is set where Jesus predicts his imminent death while the religious leaders plot and plan. Verse 1, and it came about that when Jesus finished all these words. Now, Jesus, if you'll remember, he was on the Mount of Olives. He had just finished his discourse concerning the sign of his coming and the end of the age. And so it says, when he finished these words, he had been sharing, answering those questions. What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Then Matthew 24 and 25, he shares those truths in what we call the Olivet Discourse. And it says, it came out when Jesus had finished these words, he said to his disciples, you know that, so, so first of all, he's finished speaking of his second coming in glory as the king, his, on his throne judging, uh, uh, and being then, he'll speak about being delivered up for crucifixion. So in chapters 24 and 25, we see the glory of the Lord, but he comes back to what would have to happen first, which would be his suffering, his suffering first. And he says here, notice verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. Uh, this would place this on Tuesday of the last week of his life on earth uh, before his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, we know that on Sunday before that Tuesday, he came in in the not-so-triumphal entry uh, where the humble king mounted on a donkey entered Jerusalem and the crowds cheered, yet he was weeping over their rejection of him, as we see in Luke chapter 19. And these same crowds later on in the week would be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And in Mark chapter 11, we see that Jesus uh, briefly entered the temple and then went back to Bethany to lodge uh, Sunday night with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And then on Monday morning, we saw him symbolically cursing the, the cursing Israel for their outward beauty and appearance, but yet their fruitlessness as he cursed uh, that fig tree. Then the Lord Jesus cleansed the temple from the wicked religious leaders uh, who had come and made it a robber's den rather than a place of prayer for all the nations. Then we see Jesus was teaching and preaching and healing and receiving worship in the temple, and people were hanging on his every word. And then it was on Tuesday of this last week that the religious leaders gathered up the guts to confront Jesus concerning what authority he had to do those things that he was doing. And then Jesus gave three parables specifically to the religious leaders who were so clearly, uh, who, 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 where we see so clearly God's patience in the Lord Jesus Christ and um, his mercy, yet we see their wicked leaders' rejection, their rejection. And then from this, after giving those parables of condemnation, uh, the l religious leaders step up their efforts to destroy Jesus, and they give him three different questions from three different religious groups we see here to entrap him in front of the people. It's from here he is moved to sternly condemn those religious leaders, chapter 23, through uh, those seven woes and the condemnation of Israel as a nation, and then the prophecy of the destruction of God's uh, the temple and then God's... Uh, the, the, the living God in their midst, his departure from their midst. And then we have those questions from his disciples, chapter 24 and 25, about the end of the age and his coming. And we come into, on late Tuesday now, this is where we find our passage, and it says, And it came about when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, 
you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. The reality is the death of Christ is very close. He's saying in two days, it's coming quickly, which would be Friday. In Friday, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to crucifixion. Now, Jesus had told his disciples this before. Uh, remember what he shared back in Matthew chapter 16? Look back, hold put your finger where it's at, and go back to Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, From that time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and, he, and be killed and be raised on the third day. And we know in chapter 20, the Lord Jesus revealed uh, much more to his disciples concerning his death and resurrection. Look at chapter 20, verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So his focus now is sharing with his disciples what's going to happen. What's going to happen? He has revealed that, that he would be betrayed, delivered up by the religious leaders and through the hands of Gentiles. He would be crucified. And so notice he says the same thing in our passage. And it came about back in our passage when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. You know this. You know this is going to happen. And we know crucifixion was the Romans' favored method of execution, where one would be nailed to a cross and left to die a painful death for all to see. And Jesus informs his disciples that this is his, what will happen to him. This will happen. He made it clear all the way up to this, uh, just as the Son of Man, chapter 20, verse uh, 28, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for for many. So then, this reveals and sets the tone for the end of Matthew that the focus is on the cross, which is coming. The point is the cross and what Christ would do on that cross. So back in our passage, he says, you know after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. He's saying, you guys know this. You know this truth. He says it in a tense. You've known it and you still know it right now. You know this. You know this, that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. You know this, disciples. And so it's interesting, chapter 26 begins with this focus on the cross here, and then it goes into talking of the religious leaders now and their plot to actually uh, 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 kill Jesus after the feast. Look at verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. And so it's at this same time, Matthew makes it point, at this same time that Jesus is telling them that he's going to the cross, he's, he's informing them again, at this same time, the chief priest, that would be all the priests, the high priest, ex-high priest, possibly the captain of the guard, uh, some of the temple priests, they were the religious top, top guys there, uh, not your ordinary priests. Uh, and remember, this was the theocracy, uh, that they were also politically in charge under Rome, okay? 
And then the elders of the people, that would speak of the leaders of the people, most likely the 70, the Sanhedrin. And then we have in Mark and Luke, we actually have the scribes included in this group. These were the, uh, the, the, the legal beagles and the experts in the law, the scribes. They were Israel's theologians. And so you got this phrase, the chief priests and the elders of the people, which really is a slang term for all those religious leaders. And then we have Caiaphas. He was the high priest. Uh, he was the head honcho. Uh, he was uh, not a good guy, obviously, as we see later on. He was the appointed high priest by Pilate's successor, or, or predecessor, excuse me, uh, and he served from 18 A.D. to 37 A.D., and he had wormed his way into office through marrying the daughter of Annas, the high priest of Forum. So he was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. And so we have the religious leadership gathered together, and for what? Look at verse 4. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's what they're doing. They're plotting to seize him, to grab him uh, by stealth, that no one sees it, you know, and kill him. And notice what they say in verse 5, they want to do it secretly. And why? They, they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now, the term festival or feast, really at this point, spoke of two feasts. You had the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that seven-day feast, and then you had the Feast of the Passover, which was a one-day feast, we see. And that was coming up in two days. And so they said, no, let's not do it during the feasts. You know, let's not do it during this time, unless there's going to be a riot. And there are historians that say at this time there would be up to three million Jews that had come, you know, because they were required to come to the feast, the men, but also from other places. So Jerusalem was, was hustling and bustling with a lot of uh, people celebrating these feasts. And they're saying, hey, no, we don't want any riots. We're going to do it another time. And you see, Rome was in charge of uh, Israel at that time, and the leadership that they instilled there, if they kept the peace, they had power. If they didn't, then they would lose their power, and Rome would instill someone else. And so they had that external evil pressure to not do this during this time, to do their evil deed, by the way. And yet, notice what Jesus said back in chapter 2. So they're saying, we're going to do it afterwards, but Jesus says something to the contrary. Chapter 2. 26 verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Well, that's during the feasts. And they're saying, hey, let's not do it because there's going to be a riot. So God is sovereign. And we know that Jesus, they didn't take his life. He gave his life up voluntarily, voluntarily. And we see here that the Passover is coming. Behold, Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover. The Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance from the hand of Egypt. We also see it's a deliverance from the plagues, which would have killed them, but the blood was on the, on the, on the doorposts, and God passed over, and those who by faith believed in that, they were delivered. They were delivered. The Hebrews were delivered. And Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, is our Passover lamb. When you believe in Jesus Christ, God passes over you and does not hold to account to your sins because Jesus paid the price through his blood for our sins. For our sins. Christ is our Passover lamb. So, as we know later in Matthew, Jesus would take the symbolic Passover meal and relate it to the reality of giving his body and shedding his blood for a new covenant, shedding it for us, for the forgiveness of sins. You see, God's wrath will come for your sin. God's wrath is upon uh, this world for their sin. But God is gracious. He sent his only begotten son. He came and he lived the perfect life. 
And he was willing, and he did do the Father's will, being delivered up to the cross to die for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. And all God asks of us is to acknowledge our sinfulness, to turn to him and ask for Jesus, to receive his forgiveness, to to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, we say it's a personal relationship, believing in Jesus, believing he died for your sins, the price is paid, calling upon him to save you, and he will save you. He is our Passover lamb. He's our Passover lamb. So they, uh, Jesus is saying, it's on Passover, I'm going to be delivered. The, the religious leaders are saying, let's plot and kill him, but let's not do it now. Let's wait. But something changed their minds. Something changed their minds. Look uh, up a little farther, um, or look down in your boss to verse 14. And notice in Matthew 26:14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, uh, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then they began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So Judas's deal changed things, right? And uh, they're now looking for a good opportunity. Judas is a good opportunity. Now let's look for the time to do it. Look for the time to do it. You see, but what we see here is that evil does not thwart the plan of God. It does not. God does not cause evil, uh, but he uses it to accomplish good. He takes the evil of mankind and he turns it for good. And the greatest evil ever brought upon this world, upon our Lord Jesus Christ, he took and turned for the greatest good. And so then God uh, does this. He, now, he won't ever speak of evil as good. He won't say that was good. He'll say, no, it's evil. Like Joseph, when he shared with his brothers, you meant it for evil. That was evil. But God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And so then, we have this, uh, this, this scene set where Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross in two days. Going to the cross, Passover's coming. Going to be led up for crucifixion in two days. And then we have the plotting and planning of the wicked leaders. And then the changes we'll see uh, how God sovereignly brings it about in his timing so that Jesus would be delivered up on the Passover. But at this point, we have something very interesting that happens that is interjected by Matthew here at this point, because the rest of the chapters are about the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it's about. But there's something interjected here, which you've got to ask the reason. Why is this placed here? Notice what we see here uh, in verse um, 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany. Very interesting statement. We'll figure out in a minute what that means. And at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother this, the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured out this perfume upon my body, she did to, to prepare me for burial. Therefore I say to you, whenever, wherever the gospel, this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. And we're doing that today, by the way. We're doing that today. And so here, notice the phrase, now when Jesus was in Bethany. I believe this happened a few days earlier, and Matthew, inspired by the Spirit, is going to give us an account 
at this point, which happened a couple days earlier. He's going to interject this, but he's, now we don't just say, pick to choose the time that these things are and say this is when it happened. There are clues in our text that tell us when this happened. And we can know that. But he is interjecting, as we will see, what happened a couple days ago. And more specifically, it happened on Saturday night, the night before his triumphal entry um, on Sunday. That was before the Tuesday of which we were just reading about here. And again, sometimes scripture is not in chronological order. But God will show us in his word that it isn't. And we'll see that and we'll understand why. And we do need to ask the reason why. So notice, uh, it seems to indicate it's chronological, but it's not. It's not. It says, now when Jesus was in Bethany, and also in the book of Mark and John, we have parallel accounts of this event. And in the book of John, chapter 12, and you can turn there because we're going to go back and forth between our Matthew 26 and John 12. Turn there. We're going to see something that's important here. Because the timing of this event is clearly relayed is clearly relayed. John 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. Wait a second. It was just two days before the Passover a minute ago. He's going back. Matthew's going back and relaying something that happened six days back. Okay? Uh, Came to Bethany where Lazarus was, uh, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So they made a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, the disciples, one of his disciples, was intending, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor pe- to poor people? And now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, "Let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but." You do not always have me. And so here we have the date. This is six days before the Passover. This will be Saturday night before the triumphal entry. And evidently Matthew, inspired by the Spirit, inserts this true story at this portion for a very important reason. Now, as you initially read this passage, in John's passage, you might be saying, wait a second, sounds like this is at Lazarus's house. Uh, where Mary and Martha are. But the text just says, actually, Lazarus was there along with Mary and Martha. As we're going to see, they were actually, uh, now Lazarus had been risen from the, raised from the dead by Jesus. We know that, Mary and Martha, sisters. And in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew, we see that Jesus had come to a house of Simon the leper. Go back to our passage, verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, evidently, he was no longer a leper. This was during feast time. They couldn't hang out with a leper. He was no longer a leper. And and that made people think, and I think it's probably true, he was probably one of the lepers that got cleansed. He was probably one of them. They were at his house. And and so was Lazarus, Martha, and Mary and Martha, her sister, right? And so his sisters, Mary and Martha. 
And so then, it's Saturday night in Bethany, and so uh, it's the night before his triumphal entry, and we have some interesting things happening during this dinner. Uh, verse 6, he's at, the, he's at the home of Simon the leper. Verse 7, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. Now, this was not an uncommon custom to anoint someone in the head who was a guest. To anoint someone with oil was not uncommon as a show of respect. And we see here yet uh, in these passages that this person that was doing so in the other passages was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. That's who was doing it. It was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And here we see she uses a very costly perfume. And she not only pours it on his head, which we see in our passage, she also wipes his feet with it, with her hair. And that was not a normal thing to do. We see that. Look back in John 12. Remember I told you to keep your finger in there. Look back there again. John 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, and whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And that's very important. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one reclining one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary therefore took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we have Mary using a very costly perfume. She, She does, as we will see, Jesus says a good deed. It's a good deed. It's a good deed what she does. It's a good deed. And um, in verse 10, we see Jesus was aware uh, that, uh, that from the, the, the wicked talk that was going around, and he confronts that and, and contrasts it and says that she has done a good deed to me. She's done a good deed to me. It was a good deed. And so here we're going to see the beginning of an example of what true devotion and worship looks like, what true devotion and worship looks like. And we're going to make four observations in our passage and then we'll we'll finish up. Notice first of all, true devotion is filled with gratitude. It's filled with gratitude, thankfulness, gratitude. Again, our passage. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman that's verse six came to him with an alabaster vial, a very constant perfume, she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. We're going to see in a moment that it was very costly. It was very expensive perfume, and she anoints his head as he's eating dinner. And we saw in John, she wipes his feet with her hair with the perfume. Now, why does she do this? Why does she do it? Why does she do it? Well, I think the Gospel of John, we see that she does it out of gratitude. This is the first element of devotion and worship. Back to John 12. Look at this again. We have an interesting statement here. John 12:1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, therefore, she did. Lazarus reclining at the table with Jesus. Mary, therefore, right? Gives us a clue. Took a pound of very costly perfume, a pure nard, and anointed his feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Did you see that? Mary therefore did that. Well, what do you mean? Well, I think possibly we see it is out of gratitude for Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. 
Lazarus was dead. Remember they back in chapter 11, they were mourning over Lazarus. Uh, he died. And Jesus raised him from the dead, and Mary is evidently very thankful. She is very thankful. Now we're going to see there's more to it than that, but I believe this portion points to that. And she wipes, he, she wipes his feet with costly perfume with her hair. And by the way, in a side note, 1 Corinthians 11.15, long hair is her glory. 1 Corinthians 11.15. And she wipes uh, his feet with that costly perfume. So why is this so important? Why is it so significant? Again, Mary, I believe, is grateful. She's grateful. She's thankful. And you see, when we're thankful for what Jesus did for us, we're going to be responding with gratitude. When our hearts are thankful for him dying for us, when our hearts are thankful for the forgiveness of sins, we're going to be willing to give up everything, give up our most costly treasures uh, to him, to, to worship him, to, to, to show gratitude in, in a real relationship of thankfulness. We're going to see that. We're going to see that. It's an act of gratitude for what he had done and true devotion. And by the way, worship and true devotion is centered around gratitude. We see it all throughout. We're going to see it in our passage. It's centered around thankfulness for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Thankfulness, gratitude. And I venture to say if your heart isn't grateful or thankful, you're not really worshiping the Lord, by the way. It's when we are thankful and grateful we see that, and we'll see those in so many passages. Let me share a couple passages about that. Uh, let's go to Psalms. Let's go to Psalm 9 to start. You see, if you're truly devoted to Jesus, if you're truly worshiping Jesus, you're going to be thankful for what he's done for you. It's going to be on your heart. You're going to have gratitude. It's not just going to be coming here, serving, singing, doing whatever. You know, There's going to be an internal heart gratitude to our Lord Jesus for what he has done for us, for what he has done for us. And Mary gives an example of that. Psalm 9, for the choir director on Mulef Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all thy wonders. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. I will sing of my Redeemer, right? You know, and can it be, right? We sing these songs about Jesus. Not just a song, we sing it about what he has done for us. Psalm 30, look at Psalm 30, verse 4. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, you godly ones. Sing praises to the Lord, you, you, his godly ones. And give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. God is gracious. He's good. His favor is, is toward us for a lifetime. Psalm 33, verse 2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. That's an instrument. Sing praises to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. We should be seeing who he is and being reminded of who he is through the scriptures and allowing them to draw our hearts to praise him and be devoted to him, to sitting as we'll see, sitting at his feet, uh, desiring to hear what he has to say through his word and then being devoted to him. Psalm 57, verse 9. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to thee among the nations. Sounds like, be exalted, O God, the song we sing, right? All right. He says, for thy loving kindness is great to the heavens, thy truth to the clouds. 
Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above the earth. Praise the Lord, right? Um, Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates. We saw this last week with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. As we get into the mechanics later on in Nehemiah and the New Testament about worship, we need to have the foundation, which is a relationship with the living God and a thankfulness and a praise to him. We're going to see a singing and organization and all kinds of things, preparation for how they serve. And it's good for us as a, as a small church, as we begin here, to look in Scripture to see how worship is done specifically. But it is done in the context of a worship of the living God of Christ, right? And so we have these tremendous passages. Psalm 100, we understand thanksgiving. We saw that. His courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good and his loving kindness everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 118.28. Thou art my God, I will give thanks to thee. Uh, thou art my God, I will extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, the Apostle Paul is always giving thanks, right, for what God has done in saving those uh, through his son Jesus. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and the truth. We praise God. We thank him for what he's done through his son Jesus. We read this earlier, Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Now, he's going to explain what that is. To God, that is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. As we look at the mechanics of how we're going to come together and worship, we better never leave and become mechanical when we should be praising the Lord. It should be coming from a heart of gratitude and thankfulness as a foundation. So back to our passage, back to our passage. We should be giving thanks to the Lord. This should be uh, what we should be doing every day, but, but more, how much more so when we gather together. And, you know, if you're not giving thanks to the Lord, if you never have, if your heart's never thankful, never, I would ask you to examine yourselves because Romans chapter 1 says that they didn't give thanks, those who weren't saved, those who suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. But if you've come to faith in Jesus, you're going to be thankful for what he has done for you, the forgiveness of sins. We're such wretches. I mean, I think of my sin and how sinful I am. I think of how sinful I've been. I think of Jesus paying the penalty for that sin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Right? And we should be be so thankful. Now, in that giving thanks, there should be a giving of oneself. There should be an overflowing generosity. And that's what we're going to see with Mary, an overflowing generosity. Back to our passage. She did a good deed to me, Jesus says. Verse 6, now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. She poured it upon his head and as he reclined at the table. We know from John, she first put it on his feet, right? We know from that with, and rubbed his feet with her hair, right? Now this perfume was, uh, as John said, pure nard, uh, John 12:13. It was extremely costly. It probably came from the Himalayas and to bring that over from there to uh, Jerusalem, that's a lot of money. To Bethany, a lot of money. It's expensive. In John, uh, Judas, you know, he's talking about how much it's worth because he's the money guy. He's a, he's a pilferer. He wants the cash. He's going to pretend it's ministry, but he's taking the cash. He's already got it figured out, the numbers. He says, couldn't it have been sold for 300 denarii? 
you know, and a denarii was about a day's wage. That would be between fifty and a hundred dollars for us. Think about fifty to a hundred dollars uh, times three hundred. That's fifteen to thirty thousand dollars worth of perfume. This was not a small gift, and we're going to see she doesn't go. Ten percent. There we go. Okay. There we go, Jesus. You know, she she just graciously gives it all. She gives it all because she is so thankful. And it's apparent it probably was one of her prized possessions. Probably one of her prized possessions. And so she anointed him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume. Her devotion was generous, and it cost her. But she wasn't thinking about the cost. You see, her attitude and heart attitude to worship the Lord. She was thankful. She had gratitude in her heart. We see that overflowing. She was generous, holding nothing back. Again, I mentioned she didn't measure it out. Um, True devotion to Christ doesn't pinch pennies in that sense. It's generous. There's a heart of gratitude towards the Lord. Not saying we don't be good stewards with our finances. Talking about towards the Lord. There's no, there's no penny pitching in that. There's gratitude. And our giving in that sense should be out of a sense of gratitude. Thank you, Lord God. Gratitude, not obligation. God loves a cheerful giver, not an obligated giver. He wants the heart change, the heart change that is so thankful for what he has done and what a blessing it is. And there's joy in the Lord when you're thankful for what he's done. Boy, there's joy. And so then, it's out of true, genuine love and devotion. If it is, there's going to be no limit. There's going to be no restriction, you see. And I find people, when they want to serve Christ, but they have so many strings attached. You know, I don't see that as much lately, but back before, you know, before we had our little splitty thing, the reality is a lot of people, they had so many strings on their serving. You'd say, can you just, well, this and this and that. Wait a second. There shouldn't be any strings. Shouldn't be any strings. We should just be willing to do whatever the Lord wants us to do. Now, of course, there's reality of life and those things, but Christ should be first. And it should be out of a, a changed heart. A changed heart. You know, there's so many unwilling and stingy, but yet Mary, uh, she had a heart of gratitude, a heart of thankfulness. You see, that's a, that's a small thing compared to what Jesus did, raising Lazarus. It's wonderful but small compared to what Jesus has done for us. So much more. So much more, as we'll say. She had an understanding. There was no limitation and no restraint. No restraint. Again, years ago, this was a long time ago, I was communicating with a family that had left the church, and their reason for leaving was we don't have enough money for gas. I said, really? Are you kidding me? They had enough money for gas. It just didn't work in their budget. The reality is Christ should be first. That should be the first thing, being with his people, worshiping him, praising him. But if it's all about the other things, then something may be wrong. You see, a true devotion to Christ has no restraint or no restriction in this right context, by the way, as we see it here, in this right context. We see the gratitude of Mary. Now, guess what? When you are truly devoted to the Lord, there's probably going to be some criticism. There's probably going to be some make-believers that even instigate believers uh, to come along and criticize. Often when people are doing the right thing to the Lord, when you're doing the right thing, you're not, you're not trying to show it or flaunt it to anyone, you're just doing it, and other people notice that there can be criticism. Be ready for it. Notice in our passage, notice in our passage, back in there, it says, but the disciples, uh, verse, uh, verse 9 here, let me, get my, let me make sure I get that right, the little numbers here, verse 8, uh, but the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why the waste? 
For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and money had been given to the poor. Now, of course, Jesus isn't against money going to the poor. We saw back in his, uh, in, in his separating of the sheep and the goats. Uh, how did he identify those who were his? Well, they were those who had a heart to serve suffering believers. A cup of cold water, whatever it might be, they were suffering greatly. So what you did to them, you did to me. Now, there's no doubt that he, that he doesn't have a heart to help. But here we're going to see this wasn't out of a heart to help. This was out of a perverted view of ministry that is self-centered and self-focused and certainly selfish when we come to see what Judas did. So at this point, the disciples, speaking of the 12 here, but really we're going to see it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't all the 12, but there were some of them. They're saying, why the waste? This could have been sold for a high price and give money given to the poor. Now in Mark's account, we see verse 14.4, that it was only some of the disciples became indignant. It wasn't all 12. Some of them. Which in a minute, we'll see Judas was at the lead of this. He was the one that brought it up and spoke about it. And then some of them came alongside. They're believers, by the way. Judas isn't. But they're going to come on in and join with Judas in this, in, this, in this kind of a reproof of what she had done. She had done a good deed out of a devotion to the Lord. And all of a sudden, it's being criticized. Be aware that might happen to you. When you do the right thing, you trust the Lord, you serve him with your whole heart, you might be criticized by those you think know the Lord, and some of them might even know the Lord. So we have this, why this waste? And then notice on another note, it's none other than Judas who is leading this. Uh, look at um, John 12 again, verse 3, John 12. Mary therefore took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed his defeated Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But, notice this, but Judas Iscariot. Now he is the son of perdition. He is a devil, right? He's going to do Satan's will. He's a faker. He's a make-believer. He's not saved, okay? And it says here, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... One of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 grand? Here's the guy that's saying it, right? He's instigating. You've know, got the fakers, the make-believers that are stirring up true believers to see things wrongly, right? And you got them stirring them up in a, in a ministry-minded way, basically. He says here, And given to the poor people. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money, and he as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. It's what happens when you got make believers in the congregation; they're going to have them, and you got people who will listen to them. Don't be those people. Don't be the believers that listen to them. Don't do so. Um, you might be criticized when you are truly, from a right heart, giving yourself completely to the Lord in whatever it is, and whatever you might be criticized. We see that here. We see that here. And they're saying, hey, uh, why wouldn't we sell it? But uh, this is not a good reason at all. Because ministry, for the sake of ministry, is not ministry at all. If Christ isn't the center. You see, they're talking about giving money to the poor. Versus she is anointing him, as we'll see, for burial. She is giving her most costly possession to him personally. She is personally doing so. You see, so if Christ isn't the center of ministry, there's no ministry at all. And that's what happens, and that's what I, I have. I don't fear it, but I get concerned as we teach about how we're to worship the Lord, that we don't set up a system 
that that's, that get, gets running apart from a devotion to Jesus Christ underneath it. Yes, we have to have order. We need to have a certain ways that we do things. But Christ needs to be the center. So then, uh, the principle we can get here is when you do the right thing, focusing on Jesus Christ for the right heart motives, sometimes there's going to be criticism. Sometimes there's going to be criticism. Coming from those who name the name of Christ, by the way, and those probably make believers, but also there were some disciples that joined in. There were some that joined in in this, right? And folks, this has happened before, hasn't it, to Mary? Mary has chosen good things at times, and she gets criticized for it, right? Let's go back to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Expect to be criticized when you do what is right. Don't let it deter you. Don't let it discourage you. Don't let it dissuade you. Just do what is right for Jesus. For Jesus. Look back in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. Don't forget that part, okay? But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. We understand those temptations. Sorry, all our preparations, but we should learn from this, right? Right, we should learn. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? <laughs> well, we laugh, but we can be that way too, can't we? And we need to learn from it, right? We need to learn. Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, and notice how gracious he is, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. We got Martha, her sister, complaining to the Lord about Mary. You know what I'm saying? You know, maybe some people are complaining to the Lord about others. Lord, what are they doing? You know, uh, the reality is, when you do the right thing, there will be those around you that will complain. There will be, and we see it, and we see it. Don't let it dissuade you. Don't let it dissuade you, because. Jesus said to her, said about her that she has done a good thing. Notice back in our passage. But Jesus, aware of this, this is aware of their, their criticism, right? Not about the first Martha incident, but the one with the perfume, okay? Chapter 26, verse 10, aware of this, says, Why do you bother the woman? Why do you bother her? For she has done a good deed to me. Again, there'll be people that will bother you. They will come on. Just be prepared, but don't let it dissuade you. Keep your focus on Jesus. Jesus will take care of those people. He does here, right? He does here. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. And notice, uh, we see here that true devotion prioritizes rightly. It prioritizes rightly. Mary had the priority earlier. Jesus. Jesus is the priority. Listening to his words, sitting at his feet. Jesus is the priority of everything. She prioritized him in giving this gracious gift. Jesus was the priority. It's, it's the Lord Jesus. And if he isn't the priority in everything we're doing, we are wasting our time. We are wasting our time. We need to do it out of a love relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ and a response of gratitude, of gratitude. And notice, uh, we see here that true devotion is is based on what is taught. She's actually responding also in light of what she has heard. Mary is the one that listens. Mary's the one that gets it. She's listening. She's not all caught up in the ministry. She's not hearing it. 
She gets it. She gets it. Look back down in verse 10. But Jesus said, aware of this, said, And why you buy the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not have always have, but you do not always have me. And then notice what he says. For, he explains, for when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. This is a very interesting statement. It could be taken two ways, that she was unaware she was doing it to prepare him for his burial, or in light of the fact of what he just said. We just saw earlier the Son of Man is going to go and be delivered in two days. And he's been saying that. And she's been sitting at his feet. She's been listening. She's been listening. She did it to prepare me for burial. She was focused on him. We saw back in Luke chapter 10, she was focused on the Lord Jesus. She was sitting at his feet, listening to his word. Folks, Mary seems to be the only one here who gets it. The only one who gets it because she's focused on Jesus and she's listening to him. We get caught up in all our stuff and we don't hear him. We don't hear his word. We get caught up in all the preparations and the life stuff and we don't hear what he is saying. She hears it, I believe, and she's responding rightly. And so here we see her. Uh, she was listening and seated at his feet earlier, and here she is anointing him for his burial. It is never a waste to give Jesus everything. It's never a waste. Give him your life completely. Give it all to Jesus. Don't hold back. Be thankful for what he's done and give yourself to him. Give yourself to him. You're going to be criticized. Be aware of that. But Jesus will take care of that. You just be aware. It's coming possibly. But let Jesus take care of that. Give your life. Now, there are those who are devoted to Christ, and that's characterized by they sit and listen to his feet. But they also are going to respond. They're going to respond with devotion. It's going to, their actions are going to be manifest in a love and a generosity and a giving to Jesus of time, talent, money, whatever it is, giving to him, lovingly, desiring to, 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 to honor him, to honor him. Mary understood, I believe, that she chose the good thing. She chose the good thing. Jesus would say that about Mary. She chose the good thing. And she did a good deed here. So then, as we serve the Lord, we have all kinds of opportunities to do certain things, and we have structure and ways we do it, but may we never do so out of a structure. May we never do so out of compulsion. May we never do so for others' sake. May we do so for the Lord. May it be the Lord prompting us to do those good deeds by giving ourselves to him. And notice Mary's example is an example for everyone from this point on who hears the gospel. Notice this, and we're hearing it today. Notice here, verse 13, Truly I say to you, whoever, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, that's speaking of the word of God, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, including this truth, which is in the gospels, right? We see that, but this gospel of Jesus, the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. She got it. She got it. She understood because she prioritized Jesus. And his word. She didn't prioritize his word apart from Jesus. Back earlier, she wasn't sitting, you know, reading the, the Torah in the other room and Jesus over there. And sorry, it can't bother me. I'm reading the word. No, she was at Jesus' feet listening to him. And here we see her giving uh, her most treasured possession to anoint him for burial in thankfulness and gratitude. In gratitude. 
And we are proclaiming this right here, spoken of in the memory of her. And I pray that we learn from it. We pray that we learn what Mary did was good. What Mary did was good. What she did was good. And it came out of a loving devotion and worship of Christ. So then we've seen two completely different actions with two completely different motives. We've seen the hatred of the leadership planning to kill Jesus, along with Jesus, Jude, along with Judas um, willing to betray him. But sandwiched in between these events, Judas later on, is a true story of Mary's actions and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to learn from it. So we've seen today, true worship and devotion will manifest in a heart of gratitude. Gratitude. It'll be generous towards Christ uh, with our most valuable possessions without limit. We just give of ourselves, our time, our money. It's, it's his. It's his to use however he pleases. There's a generous giving of that. It often might be criticized by people who name his name, but it all arises from the truth which he brings forth as we sit at his feet and learn more about him and what he has done for us. So let me ask you, do they name the name of Christ? What does your worship look like? What does your devotion look like? Are you willing to give yourself to the Lord in thankfulness for what he has done for us? If you're not sitting at his feet hearing him, you're not going to be thankful. If he's not your focus, you're not going to be thankful. So some you need to confess and make him hit your focus. But then from that should come a response of worship. And that's what we want to do together every time we gather together and as we live our lives each and every day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Mary's example. Lord, um, thank you for what you have done for us through your son Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would not get caught up in the ministry and the stuff of this life, Lord. We know we have to do those things, live the life and go to work and whatever it might be. We know that, but may you be the center. May we put you first. May we do our work hardly unto you and not unto men. May our, folks, may our eyes be fixed upon your son Jesus. Lord, may we be sitting at your feet to hear your word in a true relationship that we would be so thankful that we would be willing every day to give of ourselves to you completely. Lord, thank you for this example, and we thank you for your son Jesus, who died for our sins. It's in his day we pray. Amen. And John, if we could uh, sing, I will sing of my Redeemer.